is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 147 of the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm not going to lie, we are really close to 150, and I am so excited. I am also incredibly excited and humbled this morning. I won't lie, I had a little bit of a tear. <laughs> I definitely, my eyeballs leaked this morning. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> I dropped into Patreon to discover that we have hit 100 patrons. Holy actual fuck. I, you know... It's these moments that are seriously humbling. I I nearly didn't even set up a Patreon uh, when I started this podcast. I mean, I don't think I did set it up straight away, but um, I just am so grateful. I, I know that I say <laughs> that you guys uh, make me feel like what I do is worth a while, but seriously, I am so deeply honoured and grateful to get to spend more time with so many of you in the community. And it is just one of the most supportive and uplifting and inspirational communities I've ever had the honour of being part of. And it's just grown and grown and we do so many things. We watch films together. We, you know, do masterclasses. We have writing sprints together. We're doing uh, quarterly challenges together. And I'm just like, it is every day. It is such an honour and a pleasure to get to interact and communicate and be a part of something that is so rebellious, <laughs> uh, but also just so amazing. And the fact, you know, the fact is you guys make this community. So I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to all of you. And thank you also to all of the listeners of the show, patron or not. Uh, there is no podcast <laughs> without listeners. So thank you so, so much. I am feeling very humbled, a little bit tearful this morning because I, oh God, I'm going again. Um, yeah, just thank you all so much for listening to the show for the last almost three years. I am uh, very honoured to bring you this uh, podcast. And now I'm going to pause so I can pull my shit together. All right, I've pulled my weepy self back together. Let's get on with this. So today I am talking to Zoe York and oh my goodness me, I literally fell in love with Zoe. She is just such a fucking ray of sunshine. I really, really enjoyed talking to her on this episode. She's so bright and bubbly and knowledgeable and oh, I just loved this. I just loved this interview. So I really hope you guys enjoy it too. And of course, we are talking all about uh, romancing your plan, your brands uh, and your books. The book recommendation this week is a patron's book. So the book is A Serpent's Tooth by Matty Dalrymple. And the blurb goes a little bit like this. When a body is found at Lynch and Son Winery, no one suspects foul play. But then a second death occurs, and it seems that Anne Kinnear has stepped into the middle of a family feud turned fatal. Can Anne root out the evil, or will her plan to move into the winery's guesthouse bear deadly fruit? 
Hey, so last week's question, well, there were sort of two questions. One was the question of the day, which was, do you use uh, the uh, skeleton drafting method? And the other one was, tell me something you have fun planned for the summer. So Harry Brooks said, I'm looking forward to hearing this episode. A skeleton draft sounds like the perfect balance between a detailed outline and none at all. And yes, I completely agree. I did have a couple of emails um asking for clarity or sort of discussing uh, whether it was an outline or a draft and I just wanted to say again that it's completely up to you this process uh, of writing a book should always be what works for you so if you see the uh, drafting the skeleton you know uh, method as more of an outline cool if you see it more of a, of a draft for me it's more of a draft um, then also cool uh, as long as it works for you that's the most important thing and if it doesn't don't use it Okay, so CJ Dainton said, uh, yes, if a disarticulated skeleton counts, and then a little winky emoji, and S uh, SLA author, sorry, I uh, said, uh, love this method, and then uh, lots of fire and high five emojis. So the question of the week this week is, what is your poison of choice? So I, what do I mean by poison? So every month as part of the Patreon community, we run a poison and pro session, which is a sort of hour and a half uh, right session and Q&A session where we'll do some writing sprints, we'll answer questions and we always bring a poison and the poison could be food, it could be chocolate, it could be gin, it could be anything you like. So uh, when you get to have a little cheeky treat, what is your poison of, of choice? categories it falls into are ghost horror and thrillers um this is i'm just taking this from amazon so if you like uh, thrillers mysteries twisty turny stories then go check out matty's book and there will be a link in the show notes in personal news and update this week i believe the last time i recorded i was high like batshit high <laughs> it was literally high as a kite um, and that would have been the 7th of July. And today it is the 14th of July. And I suspect you can hear in my voice, I'm a little bit less high. So I spent the Friday, uh, the Thursday, the 7th, the Friday, the 8th, not writing. And then I had a mammoth day on Saturday, the 10th of July. And I wrote over nearly 11,000 words on the Saturday. And I finished the book. I cannot believe I finished the book. I wrote the book in three weeks. Um, is it ready for publication? Fuck no. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I mean, obviously I wrote it so quickly that, um, I have like a long list of editing things that I need to do to it. Uh, but you can't edit a blank page, right? So it doesn't really matter how fast I wrote it. The fact is it's there and now I can make it better. So I am super, super excited. Um, still a bit shocked that I managed to write a book so quickly. I think I actually wrote uh, 30,000 words last week, which is a monstrous total for me. I am usually around, you know, sort of in the height of writing. I used to write about 10K a week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, three times as much or two times as much. I can't do numbers, whatever. It's more. It is a lot more. Um, and I have now had a couple of coaching sessions which have been amazing. Oh, fucking love my coach. She is just phenomenal. She has changed my life. And uh, I, it is the morning after I had a coaching session and I am absolutely bollocks. I am so mentally drained and tired that I really need to take some time to process. I'm also in like the crash period. Um, 
of having finished a book very quickly. So uh, I need to spend this weekend generating energy pennies, I think, and just doing a bit of self-care and things like that. So what am I doing? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question. I am working on the launch of The Anatomy of a Bestseller. Finally, we have a launch date. So I will be launching the book on the 28th of July. So as you get this, it will be the 20th of July. Uh, And when you hear the next episode, it will be the 27th of July. So that will very likely, or actually possibly the the episode after will be a special episode uh, where I go into a lot more detail about it. But I will be telling you in next week's episode a lot, lot more about the book as I am not doing a pre-order. I don't have time to do a pre-order. I don't feel it's necessary to do a pre-order this time because I just want to get the book into your hands as fast as humanly possible. Um, If it weren't for the fact that I was going away over the summer, I probably would do a pre-order. But I, I, it's just, I just need to get it out. (laughs) So it's going out and it will be out on the 28th of July. Uh, I will tell you, I might do a little into, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I will tell you more about that. But basically, I'm super excited to bring you this. I'm starting to get early feedback, which is phenomenal. And secrets, my darlings, I have recorded 15% of the audiobook. And I'm very much hoping that by the end, by the launch, the recording and editing is done. I can't promise that. But that is my aim, is to try and get the recording of the book done by the time it launches, um, which will mean the audiobook will only be a couple of weeks behind. So yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but uh, because I have managed to record so much so quickly, um, I am pretty confident that I should be able to uh, get it done relatively quickly. It, it won't be ready for launch, I don't think, uh, unless I manage to snag some childcare over the weekend and <laughs> do like a big recording session. But of course, there is only so much you can push your voice anyway, uh, as I don't do this all day every day. Okay, so uh, what else am I doing? Uh, yeah, I'm main, mainly focusing on the launch of The Anatomy of a Bestseller and recording the audiobook. I will also be doing some editing. I'm attending uh, Becca Symes' uh, BeccaCon conference next week, uh, which I'm super excited to do. It is a massive high point uh, in the year for me. And... What else? I think that is mostly it. I am planning a few different things for when I get back. For me, August isn't really going to exist much. I have to do some presentations because I'm speaking in person at the Jericho Writers uh, Conference, which is in York in early September. So I've got to get those presentations done. Um, But apart from that, that is pretty much it in August because we're away for a good while and so I'm just not going to add any pressure to myself. And then of course after the coaching session last night I have an awful lot to think about because I might be changing my direction again. I mean not hugely changing it but just tweaking the direction that I'm going in. So yeah, it is like all go. I feel like my head is all over the fucking place today because I don't know. Yeah, I just so much to think about. I'm not really making much sense. So I'm just going to move on. Rebel of the week this week is Lynn Morrison. Lynn says, quitting a job to become a full-time author before you've published your first book is insane. (gasps) But that's exactly what I did. Oh my God. I love how this story starts. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I should preface this by saying I've got a long history of making seemingly ridiculous decisions related to my professional life. I love this story. And they've always worked out. I chalk up my survival skills to 50% luck and 50% sheer grit. My top two strengths... Oh, strengths. Listen, you are after my heart today. Our strategic and activator. Yes, everyone drink. <laughs> oh my god, this story is tickling me pink. Ah, so it should come as no surprise that when I see an alternate way to reach my goal, I am capable of figuring out a way to make it happen. In early 2019, I left a high-stress job with long hours for something less hours and seemingly more flexible. Uh, I had no intention of leaving the career world, but as a middle-aged woman, I quickly found myself in a situation I simply could not abide. Like, literally, everyone I know, uh, I... Everyone I know knows I do not work well uh, when my boss is an asshole, And to my horror, that's exactly um, how the owner of the company was described. It was a small business with no HR department. Everyone knew his behaviour was unacceptable, but what could they do? I stuck it out for five months, but by then I'd reached my limit. We were on our summer holiday. I was reading on the sun lounger and it dawned on me that I was staring at my escape route. I knew I could write. I had a strong network of friends to support me and we had savings. If I was ever going to jump ship and give it a go, now was the time. On day one back in the office, I handed in my notice and I made it abundantly clear why I was leaving. I didn't have a new offer. I just couldn't spend another day working for a chuck. It has been nearly three years now with plenty of ups and downs, but I'm still writing full time. Each month, somehow I make enough to ensure I don't have to brush off my CV and search for a job. Writing has brought me so much joy and fulfillment, not to mention the chance to make wonderful new friends. To the people out there, who are standing in my shoes, I hope my story gives you a little nudge of encouragement to stand up for yourself and take the leap. Leaning, le leaping out of the nine to five was the best rebellion of my life. Oh, I fucking love that story. What, what an incredible story. I cannot believe you left before you published your first book. You are my hero today. Holy crap. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, please do. We are always in need. I know I always say it, but like, seriously, guys, I fucking love these every single week. So please do send in your story. It's another bumper month for patrons. Bumper month? Bumper week, sorry. Um... Cassie Emerson, John Sheets, Jennifer Summersby Young, Irene Tierney, Cheese and Quackers, which, hello, that is an awesome name. Finally, Holger Nils Poll, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Forgive me if I did not. A whopping thank you. I know I started the show by thanking you all, but seriously, <laughs> seriously, thank you so much for the support. Um, I, you guys are the literal best. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a shit ton, and that is a valid metric now, a shit ton of bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by the ever amazing Kobo Writing Life. 
As an indie author, it's vital to make sure your books are finding their way to as many readers as possible. From their home base in Canada, Kobo Writing Life works hard to keep customers reading all over the world. Here are some tips that can help your books stand out globally. At Kobo Writing Life, you can set your price in 16 currencies. When you're pricing your book, you should consider how your prices are being shown globally in our store. Is your $5.99 US dollar price showing as $4.69 in British pounds? Remember, an awkward price can impact your sales, and you might as well round up and make a little more money on every sale. Make sure you are manually setting the price in all currencies. You can also use ads to target Kobo's partner stores around the world. From Booktopia in Australia to FNAC France, Kobo works with local booksellers to make sure they're reaching as many readers as possible. We also make it easy for authors to distribute to libraries, publish audiobooks, or to opt into our non-exclusive subscription program, Kobo Plus. If you want to learn any more about this or any aspects of Kobo Writing Life, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts, and find Kobo Writing Life on our social media, and the links will be in the show notes. All right, that is enough from me today. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Zoe York. Zoe is the author of more than 70 romances across three pen names, as well as three nonfiction books, of which I've read two, about uh, writing genre fiction. Zoe lives in Canada with her young family. Talking about publishing is her most favourite thing. Me too! Actually, I think craft. I think I prefer talking about craft than publishing, but I do love that just as much. So hello and welcome! Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. I'm actually really excited because I loved all the marketing and like the futuristic planning and like of like world domination that appeals to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't wait to uh, dive into uh, the content. But first of all, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey to how on earth you got 70 books done? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I just started writing and 10 years later, here we are. Um, no, it's, of course, it's a little more complicated than that. So like a lot of authors, I was a voracious reader first. I still am a voracious reader. And when I was pregnant with my second child, um, a friend of mine gave me a Kobo e-reader and that changed everything. I had recently discovered Goodreads. Um, I, I already had a Goodreads account and I had found some favorite authors and series, but literally I could count them on one hand. I was a big fan of Pamela Clare. I was a big fan of Jill Shalvis, of Robin Carr, of Susan Mallory. And those were the only four authors that I could name. I loved romance books, but I would read whatever romance book I got my hands on, you know, you're at the airport or a yard sale and you buy something that looks good. And you know, from the cover that it is going to kind of hit some of those yummy beats that you like. And so you read it. Right. And I didn't know very much about series. There were these handful of authors that I probably, I mean, I guess I would say, oh, they write in all their books are set in the same world, but I didn't understand the concept of this is a series. I wasn't that connected to the book world. Then my friend got me a Kobo 
And at the end of each book, Kobo would send you an email or show you on the screen. This is the next book. I mean, it's more of a guided reading experience, right? And it, it blew my mind. And suddenly within, you know, a couple of months while I was pregnant, I became this like deep dive person on Goodreads who was organizing shelves and adding <laughs> things to lists. <laughs> I mean, I, at that point I would have been 30 or 31 and um, I had been reading romance my whole adult life. And it was like, it felt brand new again, like felt like mind blown. And I got to the end of a series and wanted more of that. And there wasn't any more of it, which is such, I think, a common experience. That's what often leads people to fan fiction and that sort of thing, which I didn't know about at the time either. And um, and so I started to think about like just daydreaming, you know, what would that be like? What would what would more of that be like? And what if it was set in Canada where I live? And then I started writing some of that down. And my first books were so well, first of all, they weren't books. They were pieces. They were almost more like, like fan fiction drabbles, just like little scenes here and there. I was very good at writing scenes and not very good at all at the craft of stitching together a whole novel. And when I really, when I kept bumping into, well, I don't know what happens before or after this scene. Then I went in search of um, craft information. Like, how do you write a novel? I'm, I'm sure I Googled that early on in like 2011. How do you write a, a romance novel? And that got me into the writing community, you know, K boards and absolute write forum and romance divas. That was where I found my first real home through there. I, you know, well, through those, my participation in those three forums, I finished um, a first draft of a novel. And then I found out about Angela James before you hit send course, which she's still teaching to this day. And I took that and I polished that first book. And then I made my own cover because that I saw people doing that. <laughs> and I, everything in my life, everything was just kind of like, I saw people on the internet doing it. So I'm going to go do it too. And then... <laughs> Right. I'm a joiner. What can I say? So I made a cover and it was not a good cover, just like my first, you know, first few drabbles were not good. And there was a thread on Romance Divas. Like it was 10 pages, these beautiful, lovely people coaching me through how to change this and that and tweak. And, and the end result cover wasn't great either, but it was so much better than my first attempt. Um, and, and, if anyone wants to see all the covers that I have done, the book, my very first published book is a book called What Once Was Perfect. And Goodreads, the site that got me into all of this in the first place, very helpfully keeps a, a, an archive of all of your book covers, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> and they're all there. Go see. I think I've had 10 book covers for my very first book now at this point because I do them myself. <laughs> so I can just keep... <laughs> They're, they're really, they, they are all variations on three designs. So like they're, you know, mix and match and, and try to refine and improve my typography. I think that my, the, the, my typography artwork has gotten much better over, over the years. Anyway, so that's how I started. I was, I literally stumbled into it because I was a reader and because I'm insanely curious about things on the internet and then suddenly I had this book and I had a cover and, and people are like, why aren't you just publishing it? And I was like, I don't know. I thought that I would query, but 
sure, if other people are doing this publishing thing. So when I got into publishing, it wasn't with the greatest of plans. It was not without any plan though. <laughs> I love this story so much. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like your question was, tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get to where you are today? <laughs> it's a miracle that I got to today from that very inauspicious beginning. But what I did know, even from the very beginning, thanks to the people on Romeo Stevens who were so generous with their knowledge and their time, um, was you're not just writing one book, you're going to write many books, like so many books. In 2013, as I finished that book, as I designed that cover, people told me you're going to write 20 or 30 books. And that felt daunting. I mean, I was someone who literally had just celebrated crossing the 10,000 word mark in a manuscript. That had been a barrier for me for so long. Like I could write all these scenes. I had a whole bunch. I have like trunks of first chapters and first three chapters. And then the story would, would dwindle away to nothing. And I thought, oh, writing a book is so hard. I'll never finish a book. And then I finished one book. And then to have people say to me, and remember, I mean, you're going to, if you want to do this, you're going to write 20 or 30 of them. That seemed overwhelming and daunting. But now I turn around and look back and I'm like, look, I've written 73 of them. You know, I, I relate to this so hard at the moment because I am working on my 18th book and I did not like it, it, <laughs> somebody asked me recently how many books I'd written and I was like I don't fucking know like and I had to list them out in this was an Instagram DM and I know she listens to the podcast as well so she's probably going to be cackling at this but I was like I was like oh um so I've written these four and then I wrote this four and then there's another four connected to them um and anyway I listed them all out and then she was like oh that's 17 and I was like no she was like no no it is and I was like no you're wrong your math is wrong <laughs> anyway so then I counted them up myself and I was like well fuck you are right and I was wrong yeah. blink, <laughs> I just can believe it blink and you've written 17 books it's uh, remarkable it is remarkable yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and like, I don't even, I don't know. I mean, it, I'm, I'm not as fast as you, but like, I think maybe five years since I first published the first one, I kind of start from them because what led up to that took quite a while, but then it sort of, you rapidly go after that. But yeah, I just, it's gone so fast and I just can't believe yeah. you, you do look back and I just, oh, I love it. I love the story. <laughs> um, I don't, I'm sorry. I cut you off anyway. I don't know if that, if you wanted right. to, so I was um, like a lot of people, I kind of stumbled into it with a, with knowledge and enthusiasm and something of a plan. My first book was the first book in a series. And then until after I had published it, and then someone, many people on the internet said, oh, prequel novellas are, are a really good like marketing tool. And I was like, okay, I can write that. Literally, if, if someone has an idea on the internet, I will try it out. <laughs> And um, it was not a good prequel novella either. I mean, it's a good little story. The thing is, is that I have written a ton of things. And I think later on, we're going to talk about what's high concept and what's pitchable and all of that. And I'm really terrible at all of that. Um, but on a pro at a prose level, at particularly when it comes to sex scenes, my writing is pretty good. And once people read it, they're like, oh, that was yummy. I would like 10 more of those, please. <laughs> um, so, so but, but in terms of like, here's a hook grab you I'm, I'm i'm making hand gestures i mean this is a podcast that doesn't work i'm like i'm, I'm at the, the the idea of a prequel novella now 10 years later 
I know it works if it has a really hooky high concept premise. And at the end, it has a cliffhanger that leaves you, you know, drags you into the next book. My book had neither of those things. So I, so I wrote a prequel novella and it did literally nothing. I was giving it away for free and it was moving the same amount of volume as my paid first in series book was. Um, but then I, because of cross promotional opportunities from other author friends, um, I started to like, I could feel some traction happening, not a lot of traction, but like my reader group, I had a Facebook reader group from the very beginning, again, a hat tip to the helpful people on the internet who gave me that advice. Um, I, my, my Facebook reader group went from five people to 60 people when I released a, a, a multi-author box set. And then in the following spring, so I published first in June of 2013. That was a Christmas book, by the way. Again, like <laughs> just the random way I started publishing. I, so June of 2013, I published my first book, then the prequel novella, then another novel, then some two multi-author box sets that really got me some good traction, started to pull readers in. I got a BookBub feature deal in there as well. And then 11 months after I published my first book, I was laid off. And I mean, wh why am I here today? I'm here today because I was, I was laid off 11 months after I started publishing. I'm not here today because of some grand master plan. Like I didn't come into publishing with marketing genius or anything like that. I do have one of the things that I have unpacked over the subsequent years is that I did have some like built-in um, knowledge and privilege from my mom was a self-published author, not fiction, not in eBooks, but she published, she um, did desktop publishing is what we called it in the eighties. And she published a magazine from our kitchen table for about parenting, attachment, parenting and breastfeeding and natural birth and that sort of thing. And so I grew up watching my mom build a reader base, build fandom. So I knew about all of that kind of on an intuitive level, because I grew up watching that happen. That definitely helped me, but I did not bring that consciously to this publishing plan. All my, my sole conscious thought was, I love romance novels. I want to make some. Like that was it. That was. <laughs> and then the rest I have learned through a lot of trial and error. I mean, I've published 73 books now and a lot of them have been errors. You know, a lot of them have been misses in the market or didn't resonate that much with my readers. Lots of learning opportunities, so much. And I just don't give up. It's kind of, I mean, why am I here? To, how am I here today? I just kept writing and I just didn't stop. I love that so much. And we're going to talk about some of those lessons because um, I've read Romance Your Plan and Romance Your Brand. And I wondered if we could talk about some of those fundamentals that you've learned before we dive into the details. So um, what is the readerscape and why do authors need to worry about that or think about it or, or learn about it? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think we need to worry about it, but understand it. Absolutely. Think about it. Absolutely. The readerscape is so much more vast than you can imagine. The readerscape is not what you can see. So for me, when I started publishing, if I, if you had asked me, what do romance readers like? 
I would have said, it's what I see on Twitter and it's what I see on Goodreads. And then I learned about Facebook and I was like, oh, wait, there's a different pool of readers over here on Facebook. And I guess, of course, there are also readers who aren't on any of those platforms and I don't have access to them. So I'm not going to really worry about them. And over the last 10 years, I have had multiple moments of really profound connection with readers who have shown me that they discovered me through a path that I did not see, that I did not control. And if I only focus on the slices of readership that I can see, then I'm missing a really big, vast readerscape um, that is all around me. And of course, if it's all around me, but I can't see it, how do you target it? And it's not so much even about marketing, like just market to everyone everywhere. That's not what I'm saying, but just don't make any assumptions. So I guess the, so the readerscape is this huge, vast, there are so many readers out there and they are a little bit scattered. Like if you think, not you personally, but you personally and and everyone, anyone listening to this, think about everyone, you know, in your real life, think about how many of them read genre fiction you might not know the answer, right? A lot of the reading that we do, unless we are an out loud reader fandom person is very private. I don't know what books, I know that my best friend reads books. She's my best friend. I know that she reads books. I know that she doesn't read romance. She might read women's fiction, but I can't tell you the last five books that she read. The last time we talked about a book was like 18 months ago, right? So a lot of reading is very private especially when we have devices, we've got e-readers. And so if you don't see it sitting on someone's coffee table, you might never know what people like. Um, So people tend to discover books for their personal reading in very random ways. Some people only discover reading through their e-reader. So I have a Kobo, Kobo sends me emails. Um, And there are lots of people who only read through the communications that Kobo has. So if you want to reach those people, you need to A, be aware of that, and then B, try to get in those emails that Kobo sends out, right? If there are people who are only, they only read on Apple, or they only read on Barnes & Noble, or they only read through Amazon Kindle Unlimited, um, understand that it's not, I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of people who spend all of their energy on social media. So it's really a caution. When I talk about the readerscape and how vast it is, it is a caution from investing too much time in social media. That being said, one of the most vibrant new found areas of the readerscape is TikTok. And I think that it's really remarkable how open, <laughs> how open people on TikTok are to new books because what it really reveals is how unwelcome a lot of people on Facebook are to new books. I hate Facebook. I I am on it as little as humanly possible. Um, I much prefer Instagram and that's pretty much the only place that I interact now. I do have a like author Facebook group that I, I, I try to spend some time in because it's been an amazing group that I've had for a really long time and I love everybody in there, but Facebook, I don't really like, so I don't use messenger. I don't use, I don't post on my own wall. I don't upload photos. I don't do anything there. TikTok though. 
I'm just like, I, I, I'm like, I know that my readers or my readers in the new genre that I'm going into, that's where they are. And yeah. I'm like, I know I need to do it. And I just don't want to. And not to derail the conversation, but I will say you do not need to, you do not need to, but, but it might change your enthusiasm for it. If you know that it is not a Facebook 2.0, because one of the reasons why I think so many authors are burned out on social media very fairly is that it has felt for a very long time, like talking about books on Facebook is like shouting into a void. Now, some people get on TikTok and they feel exactly the same way. And I never, ever want to tell anyone, well, you should. In fact, I want to say, don't, don't spend any time doing anything that feels like shouting into the void, because the wonderful thing about the readerscape is that there are other things you can do. So if you are just not a social media person on any level, just skip that and focus on things like retailer relationships and free first and series and some, you know, there's some paid advertising opportunities. There's so many other different options. There are so many people who are very successful without ever going near social media. One famous example, like in not, not high level famous, but like in a small romance author circles is Lauren Lane. Lauren Lane um, has quit social media a couple of times and it has never hurt her. Um, she always never, she has never quit the internet. And I think that there's a big distinction between quitting social media and quitting the internet. I remember um, a little while ago, I was on Pinterest and a Lauren Lane, uh, you know, Pinterest pin, whatever came up. I clicked on it, clicked on her name and she had something like 69,000 monthly views of her page on Pinterest, right? So you never know where someone is connecting with this super vast readerscape. And just because you can't see it on Instagram or on TikTok or on Facebook doesn't mean that they're not doing something. So we don't, you don't have to do whatever I do. I don't have to do whatever someone else does, but the readerscape is vast. And so if you want to connect with readers, you have to open your mind and broaden all the different possibilities for connecting with them in a whole bunch of different ways, more than yeah. you, you know, right now. Right. So a lot of it is about being curious and just open to do things. Yeah. I, I need to be open to TikTok. <laughs> I mean, I, I love TikTok. I will be, I will cheerlead it if that helps. But. Yeah. I mean, I do, like, I, so let's, let's talk about TikTok just for two sure. seconds. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Queer woman discovered yes. lesbian thirst traps on TikTok. <gasps> was sold. Was sold on TikTok. Right? <laughs> right? Oh my god! I, I like. I show, My wife was like, "What are you watching? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Nothing." <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I am writing young adult, like queer young adult stuff. Yes. I need to be on TikTok, you know. So, um, I, I, I kind of, yeah, I. I I, I accepted that that was probably a thing I needed to do today, <laughs> literally today, which is why when you went, when you said it, I was like, oh man, like, I know, stop universe, stop. Um, okay, let's talk about some of your marketing fundamentals. What mm-hmm. do you feel are like the most fundamental things that any author should do regardless of genre? So you need to um, put your book out there And once you have put your book out there, you need to retain anyone who liked that book. So how you do that can look different for for each person. What how I do it 
is um, discounted or free first in series. And then um, sometimes I do Facebook ads. Sometimes I do social media. So like a combination thereof. books, here are my books here, hooks, that sort of thing. I'm really enjoying TikTok right now, but I wouldn't call that a fundamental. The fundamental is put your book out there, which is so hard for some authors. Like the idea of there, I just shared a, a meme today on Facebook um, and it's this very tired looking man. And above it, it says something like some authors make like character cards and book boxes. And me, I say the book it's done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of us have less energy for that type of like, my book is done. Here's my book, you know, that kind of like razzle dazzle stuff. Um, so anyway, but you put your book out there. And then you retain. And my marketing fundamental is in the retention of those readers so that each time I release a new book, I'm not starting over again, trying to find readers for it. Right. So every single time I release a book now, it is like 70 or 80 percent being marketed to people who have already read one of my books. The more books you write, the more readers you retain, the easier that energy is. It's so much easier than making a book box, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I really like email marketing. And when I say email marketing, some authors will call it an author newsletter. I don't want anyone to get hung up or feel like the word newsletter is a barrier there. It is literally people give me their email address because they want to receive email from me. And then I email them whenever I have news. Right. And it can be really short. It can be just a couple of lines. Um, it could be longer. I prefer the shorter ones. They're easier to write and I stay in touch with them. Um, and then the other thing that I like to do because not everybody likes to receive email is I have a Facebook reader group and I go back and forth on recommend that today because I started my group, of course, in, in 2013, but Facebook still remains the largest space where you can collect a group of people on social media. And I think that a lot of people still use it for groups. I mean, we talked about that at the top, right? I hate Facebook. I'm not using messenger. I don't want to look at feeds. I'm not posting pictures, but I am still there for some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until somebody comes out with an app called Groups, which Facebook has probably like put the trademark on, until we have a better Groups app, Facebook is the place for that. So I have a Facebook reader group. I have a mailing list. And when I started my secret third pen name last summer, those were the two things that I did. So everything that I say, because I regularly, I regularly get people say, yeah, but Zoe, you started in 2013. It's different now. And so it, part of why I have a secret alter ego is to test that theory. And you know what, friends, it is not different now. It is hard now. It was hard in 2013. Again, I published a Christmas book in June of 2013. I sold 60 copies to friends and family. I know exactly how hard it is to get started. Um, I, I, have, I have the advantage, again, of knowing what I know. I can't unknow what I know, but I didn't bring any other advantage to my secret alter ego. I wrote some books. At the end of the book, I said, hey, you want a bonus scene? Sign up here and I'll email it to you. And so now my alter ego has like 12,000 people on an email list. She started last year. So it is that, it is actually that simple. It's not easy 
but it's simple, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I completely agree. And, you know, I am doing, I've only just got to the end of my first fiction series. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'm able to have a free first in series. And, you know, and I've like finally, because I also write nonfiction. So, I, you know, I've got like the, the, extra epilogue or whatever it's whatever it is it's like a a a story between them yeah yeah and um yeah it's like oh this shit does still work like literally still works (laughs) you know and like every day like so I did like a huge campaign I need to write up the um results for everybody but uh of like pushing I got a book bub and all the rest of it and then like continued pushing and pushing and they've all run out now but even now every day free copies get downloaded and yeah you know not everybody who downloads a free copy will actually read it but some of them will and some of them will want more and some of them will want to sign up so you know and then you write better and you you create you write more to market or not you know more to reader I prefer saying like write to reader um but anyway um, okay, what mistakes do you think we we talked about some of the <laughs> some of the mistakes? <laughs> okay, so we know not to publish a Christmas book in June. <laughs> right. <laughs> any any other kind of big fundamental mistakes that you think writers totally. make? <laughs> so first of all, mistakes are inevitable mm-hmm. and they are all learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like I don't regret anything that I, any of the stumbles that I made along the way, because all of them taught me something so much more effectively than just hearing somebody else say it. In fact, there are things that people told me, like, for example, don't publish a Christmas book in June. And, <laughs> you know, do I learn that lesson from someone else's experiences? No, I only learn it from my own experiences. Um, so all of that's really important. I think that the, the biggest mistake that new writers make um, is too much marketing and not enough writing. Oh, brutal. <laughs> but true. Right? So fucking true. Why does so it take so long to learn that lesson? Like, I literally don't know why. I had to learn that lesson, which yeah. is why I'm laughing. There is, an, okay, so I'm about to talk about something that I don't actually do. So if, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I could never know that I also could never. But there's a reason why something like a rapid release schedule is recommended because writing and releasing books, progressive consecutive content that builds and retains and rewards readers is the best marketing that you can do. And it is zero effort marketing because it's just writing. You say you're a writer, you say you want to write books, you say you hate marketing, ergo, just write, write more books, right? But we get tangled up in, oh, I need to do all this marketing. You don't, you could take a three month leave of absence from your marketing job, take that hat off, put it in a drawer, just devote some time to writing. And at the other side of it, you will have words and words can directly be converted to money in my world. You know the other crazy thing, like everyone gets, and I say this, because I did this but we get <laughs> so caught up in writing the perfect book the first time around and oh. so we take like 10 million fucking years to get the first book out and then we stress that the second book needs to be even better and so yeah. that takes it and, and then and then for some reason we work ourselves up I did this into yeah. needing the books to be I don't know whatever and actually like 
this this is the first time I have gone to a book and I am I am smashing outwards every single day because I'm like I just need to get this book written because I want to get another one out like I haven't right I haven't wanted to 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 get to the next one so so much like I don't know I don't know why it I don't know if it was like a tipping point or if it was a like all of a sudden lights on oh this is we have to prioritize the words but I would I would spend eons of time trying to get like two more followers on social media and you know that it doesn't always fucking convert to to sales sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't you know like and then I don't know like it's been a real wake-up call that actually also I think like uh, I don't know if you know anything about Clifton Strengths everybody drink but um I'm like number one competition so (laughs) are you a fan Oh yeah, a number one ideation. I could talk about drinks all night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Everyone drink. Everyone has to take a drink when I talk about it because I talk about strength so much. I am like a huge back Becca nerd. Um, yeah, I love it. <laughs> but um, now I'm like, oh, competition's hungry. We can't really do anything until we have a backlist. Must write all the words. I've literally like. I mean, I'm I'm pumping out words in a way that I never thought I would ever do. So yay strengths. But um, I don't even know where I, what happened or what got me down this road. But yes, oh my God, you are so right. Just write the next book. And we all, we all stumble on that. Like literally, I just released a book last week. It was my 73rd book. It was the fourth book in my second Pine Harbor series. So book 12 of a fan favorite series, like kind of the core thing that my readers love and I angsted about it and I thought about pushing the pre-order back because I wasn't sure it was good enough oh and I wanted to it's ridiculous it. I didn't and so in the end I didn't I decided no it's good enough we're sending this to the copy editor and we are releasing this and the readers are loving it and all of that angst as soon as I released it kind of like disappeared into the ether, right? It is a lie that my brain told me myself, like to be hurtful, like our brains can bully ourselves, which is like, there's a lot, I mean, go to therapy, but that, oh, it's so messy and complicated, even after 73 books. So if you can kind of build a structure for yourself of we're going to write books, books, plural, many, many books for these reasons and kind of make those concrete, write them down for yourself so that when you get into a period of doubt and we all do, Mm. you can go back and look at those kind of foundational principles of your business and go, nope, this is why I'm doing it. Don't let that self-doubt invade. I love that because I literally have been, I've almost felt like each successive book is harder. And like a lot of my patrons are taking the piss because they were like, Sasha, you say that every single time. And I'm like, no, but really this time, it's really hard to let it go. And they were like, you literally said that word for word last time. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) Deeply relatable. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about the pre-work. Mm-hmm. Um, so before you approach a market or a genre or um, before you approach writing your book, like how do you how do you approach that? What do you want to know? What do you seed into the craft? Like what marketing do you seed into the craft of your book? Yes, I love this question. So I think that understanding um, reader expectations is very important. One of the things about Uh, readers is that they may not use the same language that we do 
but they are experts on the books that we're going to write. You know, they know when something is missing. They know if you've missed an essential beat of a trope, for example. So if you are going to, for example, get into writing queer YA, then you want to understand what the reader expectation will be in that genre if you want to dominate in that genre. Reading the 31st book in that genre right now. (laughs) I have been going hard at at trying to figure it out. So yes, absolutely. I think that reading in the genre that you want to write, reading for research, Mm -hmm. reading quickly, reading slowly, there's lots of different ways to do it. Read in audio if you're having trouble getting into the words on the page. Um, Some people find that their inner editor um, starts to like rebel inside them when they're trying to read something, which maybe they don't like. I mean, I think that it is also valid to write, to enter a space because you want to change that space, right? Mm. That is absolutely valid. So when you do your reading research, do it with a critical eye, but not one that is mean because the mean will skip over the parts that are resonating with readers. So you want to do it in like a very like detachedly, detachedly, that's not a word, (laughs) In in a critically detached kind of way. So my alter ego, for example, um, Last summer, I really struggled. Well, 2020, really, two years ago. Wow, time. Um, in 2020, I really struggled to read. I think a lot of people have hit this point at some point over the pandemic, right? Worry is too big and reading is a bit of a quiet activity. And when we're quiet, the worries kind of can intrude. So I was watching a lot of TV more than I ever have in the past. And I missed reading. And so I got into reading these short, smutty Kindle Unlimited stories. They're delicious, like ooh, like little candy. You just read one in a night or like three in a night. Just zoom through them. They're delicious. But over and over and over as I read them, I had this reaction of, oh, one sex scene? That's it? Like he fingers her, he goes down on her, they fuck, and then the book is over? But where are like the four other essential sex scenes in my brain? And they don't, like, there's this, like, there's no, there's a missing gap in the marketplace where there should be, like someone needed to wedge 35,000 word novellas that are like smutty insta love start, but then there's like seven sex scenes. It's what I wanted to read. And so I decided to write it. So that's what my alter ego writes. So that's not like, I'm not, I did not do that research in order to be derivative or copy others. I did the research to know that I would meet reader expectations and then surpass them. So I think that if we're going in with a goal of changing a part of the market, you still want to meet those reader expectations before you change them. I love that you've shared this story and I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm going into queer YA. Um, One, there is not enough sapphic young adult books. Yeah. But two, all of the sapphic young adult books are sweet romance. Right. And I'm like, you don't have to be explicit for, to give teens a real story. Right. With real characters and real experiences you you know like you don't have to be it doesn't have to be I don't know what the word is but sort of awkward or um inappropriate but you can still give them real 
realness and and that's why I'm going in because I'm like this is not this is not okay <laughs> what yeah. is there what if we can have Sarah J Mass and I know I know she is technically yeah she's moving in the adult, adult stuff yeah. but a lot of teens read her you know court of whatever and whatever yeah. and I'm like if we can have that at the upper end of YA why have we not got real books for queer teens so that's I'm going in because and and I love the stories like I can pick out a ton of books that I've read that I'm like oh my god this is so lovely I love this book so it's not that I'm being mean it's just there's not there's something missing for me I want it where the fuck is it I want it yes yes I love that I love that (laughs) and I do think that if you can find a reading space where you have that energy of I love this and I wish it was more Mm. That is where you should be writing. That's where everyone should be writing. Well, this is very affirming. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So in your book, um, you talk about the concept of a series 2.0. What is that? And like, why should we do that? And what elements, um, how do we work out what was successful um, so that we can do the 2.0? Great question. Okay. So part of it is a gut call on your part. Part of it is, again, doing a bit of research. And, and this time, it this is where these things, everything that I talk about happens in layers. So if you don't have a Facebook reader group, if you don't have an email newsletter, then it's going to be much harder for you to know what readers like about your books, right? If you have those two um, pieces of infrastructure already in place, then it is much easier to dive into the feedback that you observe and get that kind of, what do people like about your series? So let's assume that you don't have a newsletter and and a Facebook reader group then, or a TikTok or whatever. Then the first step is you need to build that. Before you think about series 2.0, you really do need to have um, a well where you can put some readers from the readerscape. You're, it's not going to be everybody. You're never going to know exactly why people read, like why all people read your books. But the people that you do have access to, make sure that you actually are fully exploiting your ability to access them. And you you encourage them to tell you what they like the best. So one thing that I do is I um, encourage people who like to leave reviews to join my review crew. So I have a Google form where any, and I regularly offer it to my entire newsletter. My entire newsletter is um, about 40,000 people have signed up over 10 years, have signed up for my Zoe newsletter. And about um, 500 of those people have at some point said they'd like to be on my review team. So it is never going to completely suck away from your whole newsletter. Like, don't ever worry about that. It's a relatively small percentage. If you have, if you control um, an ARC distribution, advanced review copy distribution of your book, and you encourage people to send you reviews that they want you to see, then you will be given every time you release a book, you'll be given a flood of positive data about what people liked about your book. Right. So if you kind of build that, then when it comes time to designing your next series, you will all you will already have all the market research you really need about what worked for your series. Okay. What didn't work is often in the absence, like what people never talk about 
that probably doesn't matter. So you could think about trimming some of that stuff away. So let's talk about, so for example, if you're going to be writing a new YA sapphic series, um, you're going to just, you're going to pour your heart and soul into this first series and it's going to hit the marketplace and it's going to resonate with some people and you're going to have some sales and you're going to build that, that new reader community. And at some point, you know, you're going to finish that first project if it's a trilogy or a long running series or whatever. Um, and you're going to think, okay, I want to do another one. Then it, it might be the same idea over again. So different world but very similar concept, or it might be the same world, like, but with a new entry point. So if we think about our books, not as books, but as products in a whole catalog, the more we can create different entry points to our catalog, the more marketing opportunities we have with our backlist. So the other reason why I push this <clears throat> idea of series 2.0 is so that we can reboot um, reader entries into our catalog. If so, I've written 12 Pine Harbor novels now. Um, after book eight, I broke the series and started a new series. So the first series was called Pine Harbor. The second series was called Kincaids of Pine Harbor. I very recently changed that series to the Kincaid Brothers because I decided it didn't need to have the word Pine Harbor, like the name of the town in the series name. So I'm just like, I'm playing around with some things. Doesn't matter if Pine Harbor is in the series name or not. It's one of those little tweaking. Sometimes it's not like a big pivot. Sometimes it's a tiny little tweak. And the reason why I broke that series and started a new series was because sales plateaued. So my peak for, for the first series was with book six and then book seven and eight had slightly declining sales. And I was like, book nine is a very good first in series. It's a new family, a new group of five brothers. And I think that what was going to be book nine, I think it'll make a very strong catalog entry point. And book one, was written back in 2014. So another reason why we do this series 2.0 is so that we can breathe new life from a current point of view and also send those readers backwards to a series that I started in 2014, rather than keep relying on that first title from 2014 to do so much heavy lifting. Okay, so it doesn't even have to be, like it can be the same series without saying it's the same series in a way. So like, for example, um, <clears throat> I'm writing a standalone, but then I'm whilst I'm kind of world building for a series that I want to be episodic, but in the same. So like like in the, in the true romance fashion, each book is about two cat two one romance even though the characters will go into the other one so it, the way that I'm kind of talking about it is um gossip girl meets the l word but at university um and so like maybe I could do a 2.0 in Paris or maybe I could do a 2.0 because a new character comes in and breaks up I don't know no well, you can't really do break up can you but you know um somebody else comes in and, and changes stuff up or you know go to a different university so that's the kind of way that you can iterate it yeah yeah, so you can iterate um, setting, cast. Um, sometimes also I see people do it on a structural level. So for example, I wrote um, at 10 Navy SEAL books and they were all between 25 and 35,000 words. I really like the novella length. Novellas are great for turning out a lot of content relatively quickly, but they have less staying power, less evergreen sales ability than a novel. Novels will just 
you, you can sell a novel 10 years down the road in a way that novellas ugh, becomes very hard. So if at some point I wanted to do another SEAL series, but and, and it could be exactly the same setting, it could be exactly the same team, we could see all those same characters again, but I wanted the length of the books to be different. Instead of growing the length of the books at the end of the series, much better to introduce a, a cutting, a breakoff point there, series 2.0 it, tighten it up. Maybe it's different cover designs. Maybe it's, it's a different title um, naming convention. Existing readers will come forward. So the other thing about series 2.0 is that it is doing two things at once. It is bringing forward every reader who pre who liked series 1.0 so to those readers it is a continuation of the same series but to any new reader it is its own brand new series so book one of a series 2.0 has to both be the the next book in a previous series and a true complete standalone entry point is there a common um, number of books for a series? Like, do you find it always tails off after six or does it depend on the series? Does it depend on the niche in romance? Like what, like, yeah. How? Do you I, I think it mostly depends on the popularity of the author. So whenever I talk about this, um, people will, will put up examples of people who have 20 book series. One of those, for example, is Robin Carr, Virgin River recently was made into a Netflix show, obviously a massive success. Virgin River is a series 2.0. It's actually probably a series 3.0. Um, if you read the Virgin River books, there are mentions of a, another town just like over the mountain called Gold Valley. Gold Valley was a series, a trilogy written for Harlequin like 15 years ago, 18 years ago now. There were only three books. The first book was about a doctor. I don't know what the other two books are about. I mean, I read them. I just don't remember them because I read them a long time ago. Um, when I read the first couple books in the Virgin River series, I was like, Gold Valley keeps being mentioned. I bet I should go back and read those books. And when I went back to read them, you could see how they were not quite as tight as the Virgin River series. They were Virgin River, but without the wounded Marines, right? So the core of Virgin River is that there's this group of Marines who've come back from Iraq and they literally need to go into the mountains to like find themselves again. And of course, meet beautiful people and fall in love, <laughs> um, you know, kind of standard romance stuff. And Gold Valley had the setting, same setting, similar characters, but without that wounded military protagonist. When she added that in, whew, the whole series tightened up. The premise was elevated. And that series is now a Netflix show. Of course, after 20 years. And um, what, sorry, I was just going to say, that's an amazing segue. <laughs> because I wanted to ask about high concepts and pitches. Yes. Can you yeah. talk about them? Like, how do you even know if you have a high concept? Like, what, 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 is, what is not a good pitch? What is, yeah, talk, talk to me about that. So... It's, it's hard to know because sometimes as writers, we're, to, we're so close to our own work that we stumble over the pitch anyway, even if there is a high concept nugget in it. But in general, a high concept hook is one that can be easily explained in a few words. So city girl goes to the mountains and falls for the grumpy lumberjack next door. That's a pretty high concept idea that's told over and over again. And you can layer in a couple of other things to make it unique, make it your own, not make it derivative. High concept stories are certainly not required for storytelling. 
often my books, I don't think are that high concept. Um, high concept books right now are the ones that after some practice, you can write a couple of TikToks for. And the books that we struggle to pitch on TikTok, it's because there is no clear high concept promise we can give to the readers from the story. Um, if you have a toss up, if you, if you, this is why I like to plan a series a little bit in advance. If you have a toss up between, well, I kind of want to write about this like grumpy oldest brother who falls for like the sunshiny woman who at first won't give him the time of day. But also like his middle brother is a high school principal who um, he's on a search and rescue team and he doesn't really know how to like communicate about his feelings. Like that second one is just not high concept, you know? You get to write them both, but the second one is later in the series. You hook people with the first one. And then once you've hooked them in with your, you, so you take all the ideas that you want to write and you move them around on the table until they are like rated from highest concept to lowest concept. And then that's how you write the series. Oh, I feel like I need to lie down. Like my brain is whirling. <laughs> This ah, oh, I this is this is amazing. Like I, because you kind of talk about this in the book, but hearing it from you in person, I'm like, oh, everything is slotting into place. And now I'm like, I need to rejig the order in which I was going to write this the girl game series. Um, but yeah, I, I love to hear that. I love to hear that. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like I wanted to, I wanted to write one and I'm like, maybe I should, I'm just, you know, I should do the enemies to lovers first because everybody loves enemies to lovers. Right. So I think that one has to go first instead of the other one that I was going to do. Um, oh my God. I'm so excited to like get back to the page. How can, um, last question actually, no, uh, yeah, just a, just a brief one before I ask you our ultimate podcast yeah. question, how can writers cultivate their fans and keep them for longer? We've kind of talked a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the, the 2.0 and how that will keep, uh, the original fans, but is there anything else that you feel that writers can do? Yeah. So I do think that it starts with that foundational piece of having some infrastructure. So a newsletter, um, some spaces on social media, wherever you prefer to be. So because there will be people who want to be collected by email, there will be other people who only want to be collected on social media. Make sure that you're in both spaces so that you can you can retain as many readers as possible who have enjoyed your books. Then once you have retained them, there's a couple of pieces that you just need to be conscious of observation listening testing and then the data that you get from all of that so the more that you give your readers the more you can then take back from them in terms of information that you can use for fan reward or fan service um so what what, one of the things that I'm doing a lot of right now is writing bonus scenes. I use bonus scenes at the back of my book to, um, to hook new readers. So if that's the first book of mine that you have read, and then you get to the end and there's a bonus scene, um, I will get you on my mailing list in order to, and, and in turn, you get that bonus scene to read. But those bonus scenes are also wonderful um, fan service if your readers respond to them. 
So one of the things that I had been doing, I've, I've been writing these. And, um, and in addition to just putting them at the back of the books, I make sure to kind of celebrate them a little bit in my reader group and to my newsletter, share them. And when I got a positive response from my existing readers for that material, I started increasing the amount of bonus content that I was writing. And now I'm writing bonus content for bonus content. So there are some, uh, there are some characters that I have written that will now have like two or three bonus scenes, like way into the future, five years, 10 years after, because through trial and error and testing and observing how readers responded to that, to that, I discovered that was a very effective piece of fan service for my Zoe readers. Now, my alter egos readers, they like the bonus content. They are not as deeply invested in those characters. Again, I write like, like the short, smutty KU stuff. They really enjoy the characters, but tomorrow night they're going on to another book. Whereas my Zoe books are much longer and people take like two or three days to read them. They are more deeply invested in those characters. Those characters become like friends to them. So between the two pen names, I have noticed a significant um, quality difference in, or not quality, that's not exactly the right word, but like bonus contents are very helpful for my alter ego. They are now core to my marketing plan as Zoe. There's just a waiting difference there. Whereas the fan service that I do more for my alter ego is more about the thematic or trope elements that the readers seem to respond to. So I make the, like these little memes um, in Canva it's like um, A, B, or C, like pick A, B, or C, or like this or that. And I, it, the books that I write are um, Daddy Kink. And so it's like, choose your daddy, like Rockstar Daddy, Lumberjack Daddy, or like Professor Daddy. If I put up one of those every day in my reader group, they would literally never get tired of answering that question, right? <laughs> because it's delivering, what are they enjoying the most about my book? It's not actually the characters, it's the archetype, it's the kink, it's that very specific little hook. So if the more that you can observe and um, pull data from your reader behavior, the more accurately you can hone that reader um reward and service that you want to deliver. And I think that that, um, that is one part of cultivating fans is giving them more of what they seem to like. And then also just being very um, like appreciative, but not too bossy when they take things and kind of make them their own. One of the things that um, uh, Dr. Jennifer Barnes, Jennifer Lynn Barnes talks about is that fandom um, is something that we don't get to control. We can foster it, right? We can like breathe some oxygen on it, but once it takes off, we do not get to control it. So, and this is not something I have really had to experience yet, but I've seen other authors um, deal with this. And so I, it's in the back of my mind. Um, and I think that everyone should have it in the back of their mind. There will be a point when your readers, and it might be 30 years from now, but when your readers suddenly are like, this is mine, bitch, what are you doing? And you're like, bitch, I'm the person <laughs> who created it. Um, uh, uh, 
<laughs> and it gets real awkward real fast, right? So like you don't want to be so controlling about your work that it that it strangles fans, right? So give them give them give them what you observe that they are responding to and then really kind of like sit back and let them they might take it they might run with it they might turn it blow it up or they might not you don't not everybody needs to have a massive fandom massive active fandom the final piece i want to say about fandom before we finish is my that very first series that i started that christmas story that i released in june um that only sold you know I, you know 60 copies when it launched and then a couple hundred copies over that winter um is i did not recognize the nascent fandom that i had in that series because it didn't look like fandom you know nascent fandom early beginning days of fandom does not look like fandom it looks like people emailing you and telling you how much they enjoyed their book that book it it looks like people just remembering character names now that i have, have an alter ego that people do not remember the character names for because they're so like reading through them so quickly um it, it is deeply rewarding that people remember your character names. That is fandom too. And it doesn't, in the moment, it can feel like not very much at all. But once you have, um, once you've lost it, the, I get emails so much. That very first series had 10 books in it and it's now done. But there were a couple of characters in it who I didn't get to. And I do tease at the end of book 10 that I, I will write a spinoff trilogy wrapping up they're wrapping up their stories that those books do not sell as well as pine harbor books they don't sell as well as my navy seal books but those books are the ones that i get the most emails about so fandom doesn't necessarily correlate to sales it doesn't necessarily correlate to success um fandom is something quite unexpected and it blooms on its own and just let it you know foster it so anytime i get an email like that I make sure that I reply to that person and tell them that how much I appreciate that. I tell them it was my very first series and that it's deeply meaningful to me that they loved it. And I do hope to get back to those books someday. Oh, I love that so much. Like, I, I wish I could speak to you for another hour <laughs> because I just want to talk about all of the things. And like, I love that so much. And you know, I definitely see what you're saying about the difference between like fandom and I don't know sales ranking the rest of it and mm -hmm. like I think that is so true to to be grateful and recognize what you actually do have even if it starts small because ultimately we're all here building an audience one single reader at yeah. a time and each reader matters and you know so yeah I love that so much okay this is the <laughs> rebel author podcast <laughs> tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel so uh, before i was an author i was deeply involved in politics here in canada and um into during the 2016 american election um i lots of people told me don't get involved. Like if you, if you get involved in politics, if you use your platform to talk about politics, you're going to divide your readership in half. Well, first of all, I strongly do not believe that half of my reader base cares that much about Donald Trump, that they would like get mad and stop reading my books. But if they did, that would be fine. Uh, fuck them. But they, but they, that didn't prove to be true. And I think that that started something inside me 
that over the last four years has kind of been burning away or six years now time um, has kind of been like grinding away because I had this story inside me about um, a teenage couple that got pregnant, had an abortion and then get together later on in life. And I always felt like you can't write it. Like I've never read that book. And since I haven't read that book, like maybe nobody wants to read that book. And I just, I went, fuck it last year. And I thought I'm writing that book. Not only am I writing that book, but it's going to be the next book in the Pine Harbor series. It totally fits it. Of course it fits. Like in my head, I'm like, but like lots of my characters have probably had abortions, but I didn't fucking put that on the page. Right. Because the beats and reader expectations and fuck it. So early, like at the start of, at the top of the podcast, I was like, it's important to know reader expectations. <laughs> and I think it is, but it is then also okay to blow those reader expectations out of the water. Except in this case, I didn't even do that. I was fully prepared for people to be like, ah, she had an abortion, even though I know that something like 70% of Americans secretly do understand why people have abortions, right? Not a single complaint, not a single reader email. I get all sorts. I, I told my mailing list um, a couple months ago that I had an abortion when I was a teenager and I got some like, I'll pray for you comments. Um, those people clearly didn't buy this book. That's fine. But, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the, the, the best reviews I have had so far, because I didn't use it as a conflict. There's no conflict about abortion in this book. I just made it a part of her character. Like, it's just, it's a thing that happened in her life. That's it. And I think that's not actually very rebellious in the end. Like I look back and I'm like, why did that even feel angsty for me? But it did. So the, the, the rebellious part, the inner rebel part is, and a lot of it's actually about that, like the, the, the negative self-talk and the self-bullying that we do to ourselves or fucking brains um, that I told myself it would be a big deal. And so I didn't do something. And so the unleashing my inner rebel is about telling my own brain to get out of my own way so I could write the story that I really wanted to write. And then of course it was fine. Of course it was fine. So if anyone's listening to this, it will be fine. Write the thing that is scary to you. It will be fine. I love that rebellion so much. I love it when it's like we rebel against our own selves. Like that is honestly the greatest rebellions. I have absolutely adored talking to you. And if you if you do more nonfiction, I am so here for you. Uh, if you want to come back, because this has been so much fun. I have adored it. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else that you would like to add? Absolutely. So my nonfiction can be found at romanceyourbrand.com. It has its own website. And my fiction is at zoeyork.com, ainsleybooth.com. We didn't talk about Ainsley, but she was my first alter ego. She's the one I'm open about. And then of course, like my secret alter ego is on TikTok. Uh, If you search for, you know, dirty books, you might eventually find her. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Zoe York. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Join me next week as I talk to Ryan Cahill about how to write epic fantasy. And I have to say, I absolutely loved 
the chat with him. He is fascinating, insightful, and yeah, like we agreed on a lot of stuff. So obviously, <laughs> I thought he was just delightful, but it was a really good uh, chat. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.